Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to take a look at the life of famous writer J.R.R. Tolkien, John Ronald Rule Tolkien, the creator of the fantasy world called Middle-Earth, and my favorite writer, uh, right up there in the number one spot along with possibly H.P. Lovecraft. Tolkien was a great many things throughout his life, not just a writer, but he was also a soldier, a professor, scholar, uh, well-known researcher, and uh, interestingly enough, I didn't know this until I did a bit of research, he was an orphan, and that had a great effect on his life. So today we're going to talk about the creator of Middle-earth. Tolkien was born in a city called Bloemfontein in South Africa on January 3rd, 1892. This was in a province of South Africa called the Orange Free State. And his parents were Arthur Tolkien and Mabel Suffield. He was born into an upper middle class family. Uh, his father was a bank manager and had been working at a bank in Birmingham in England. And in 1890, two years before Tolkien was born, he was offered a pretty prestigious position as a bank manager in South Africa for the Bank of Africa. And so the Tolkien's departed and Arthur started his job there. Arthur was your classic Victorian gentleman, you know, big mustache, uh, educated, serving in the, the far corners of the empire. And this time in South Africa would have an effect on Tolkien, but maybe not as much as you would think. In 1894, John's brother, Hilary Arthur Rule, was born. So now the family had two boys. Right around this time, Tolkien, uh, John, was playing in the garden near the house and was bitten by a baboon spider, which is absolutely terrifying if you Google pictures of them. Uh, there's a, a quick-witted servant who was nearby that managed to suck out the venom before there was any damage. I did a little bit of digging on baboon spiders. Apparently, their venom is uh, not lethal to humans. It can cause dizziness and vomiting. But who's to say what effect that would have on Tolkien at the age that he was when he was bitten, which I believe was like a year and a half to two years old. So some ha some people have speculated that that may be one of the reasons why spiders uh, as terrifying agents of evil figure so prominently in Tolkien's works. We see the Mirkwood spiders in The Hobbit, and we see Shelob in The Lord of the Rings, and we see Ungoliant in the Silmarillion, kind of this, uh, this childhood trauma. Although later in life, when people asked Tolkien about it, he said, no, I don't even remember that happening. Despite this, some people have still speculated that maybe it, it formed part of his unconscious or subconscious memory, this kind of memory of being attacked by a spider. The Tolkiens stayed in South Africa until 1895, when in April, Mabel decided to take the two young boys back to England. Arthur stayed behind working at the bank and they were still in contact. They were writing. It was just at this stage in their life, uh, his job in South Africa was just too good, too important. Unfortunately, he started to get sick down there. In November of 1895, he got uh, rheumatic fever, which was potentially fatal at the time. I'm not sure if it still is. But the next year, in 1896, Arthur had still not uh, decided to make the voyage back to England, and his fever seemed to be getting worse. That year, he suffered a hemorrhage and died. So Arthur Tolkien was now, you know, out of the picture. He had died in South Africa, and Mabel was left with these two young boys, um, who, for the most part, did not really have any strong memories of their father, or indeed even of South Africa. Later in life, Tolkien would say that uh, his time in South Africa, I mean, keep in mind, 
they left when he was three years old, a little older than three years old. He said he could remember one or two words of Afrikaans, which is the Dutch dialect of South Africa. And he had one or two blurry memories of the, the grasslands of South Africa. But that's pretty much it uh, for his memories of this far corner of the empire. The Tolkien's settled in a place called Sayerhole, which was a village on the outskirts of the town of Moseley near Birmingham in England. So Birmingham is in a region of England called the West Midlands. And the, I guess, sub-region uh, would be called Warwickshire. Uh, there's a famous uh, place there called Warwick Castle. But anyway, the, the sub-region is called Warwickshire. And let me tell you, this little village on the outskirts of a little town on the outskirts of Birmingham was basically the Shire. Um, the, this, the setting was just so English countryside, like green and prosperous. Um, there was a nearby mill. There were colors of browns and greens and yellows, uh, ancient barns, hills, creeks, streams, vales, um, very, very much uh, like the Shire. And while there, these two boys, so John and Hillary, uh, started making friends with the local boys, these Warwickshire uh, farm boys who had their, their own dialect and the way they would talk and the things that they liked to do for fun. I, from what I've read, they, they were basically hobbits. Um, this was kind of the prototype of what Tolkien would later base his conception of what a hobbit is, were these these uh, plain-spoken, uh, rural kind of Warwickshire farm boys and their dialect. Uh, he would build on this later, his, his conception of a hobbit and what that is, which a lot of scholars have said, and I, and I happen to agree with this, was what a hobbit was in Middle-earth was basically Tolkien's conception of the ideal Englishman. So, you know, these hobbits embodied everything that was good and bright and pure about England. Interestingly enough, in Warwickshire, there was a doctor that, uh, <laughs> there was a local man named Samson Gamgee, who around the turn of the century created these cotton balls. It was like a cotton wool and they were used for cleaning and for like medical gauze. And his name was Samson Gamgee. So in that area, Gamgee tissue was basically slang for like gauze or cotton balls. So as kind of like a little homage to the place where he grew up, a lot of people have said, well, hey, you know, Samwise Gamgee is named after this, uh, this local guy that was from the region where he grew up. Another little pawn or clue or Easter egg that you can find in the Lord of the Rings relating to this Samson Gamgee doctor guy is that uh, later on in the Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee marries a woman called Rosie Cotton. So it's like kind of, I don't know, a little pun that Tolkien felt he just had to put in there. The guy named after the creator of these cotton balls marries a lady named Cotton. So there you go. All right. Now, let's talk about another huge, huge influence in Tolkien's life, and that is Roman Catholicism. So, the Tolkien's, uh, being thoroughly English, had been, the boys had been baptized into the Church of England, and, you know, they attended church as much as was socially necessary. But right around the turn of the century, uh, Tolkien's mother, Mabel, started to become really, really religious and very much interested in Roman Catholicism. And in the year 1900, she converted to Roman Catholicism. And this is a big deal for a few reasons. Uh, at this time period, which is right at the tail end of the Victorian era, beginning of the Edwardian era, Britain was just staunchly, fiercely Protestant. Um, it was like a core part of their identity. There had been wars in the past between Catholics and Protestants in Britain. A lot of uh, 
you know, true blue British people were kind of suspicious of anything Catholic because they thought that it meant you had loyalty to the Pope instead of the Queen, or they associated it with continental peoples like Spaniards and Frenchmen, stuff like that. As a result of this, a lot of their family actually started to shun them. Um, and Mabel kind of found that a lot of the family were not just socially uh, shunning them, they were kind of cutting off their, their support too. Because keep in mind, at this point, she was pretty much on her own. Um, they would find a local priest named Father Morgan, who would have a huge effect on their lives in helping them, supporting them, integrating them into the community, and maybe serving as some kind of a father figure to the young John. There was pretty much only one uncle on the Tolkien side that kind of went against the, the the wider family's wishes and still continued to send a bit of money to Mabel and the boys to support them. But it was really Father Morgan who encouraged uh, their learning and, and stuff like that. In 1903, Tolkien won a scholarship to King Edward's Grammar School, where he would soon go. The family moved to a little place called Rednall. And there was a teacher there um, at the school, King Edward's Grammar School, that had a large effect on Tolkien as well, George Brewerton. And he introduced the boy to the medieval world and its languages, laws, and letters. And Tolkien was just instantly fascinated by this kind of world, this mythical, misty kind of version of England you know, going back to medieval England, but even further to Anglo-Saxon England, which was probably one of the periods that interested him the most and would later vastly contribute to the development of the folklore, the mythology, the culture of Middle-earth. You know, so for example, the Kingdom of Rohan is very, very much based on Anglo-Saxon England. It's kind of like Tolkien's conception of what England would have been like had it not been for the Norman conquest that started in 1066. But anyway, enough of that. So now we're seeing uh, three major role models so far in John's life. You see his mother, Mabel Suffield, and then you have Father Francis Xavier Morgan and his teacher at King Edward's Grammar School, George Brewerton. At this point in John's life, tragedy struck again. In November of 1904, his mother, who he loved very, very much, died. So now the boys were on their own. Um, Tolkien at this point was only 12, and his brother Hillary was only 10. So what happened? Well, they were taken in uh, by their new guardian, Father Morgan. See, before Mabel had died, she had designated this, uh, this guy, Father Morgan, to be their guardian in the event that anything should happen to her. So he was there, and he kind of took care of them until they went to live with their aunt, Beatrice Suffield, in Birmingham. And he continued to go to King Edward's Grammar School, and, where he was captain of the rugby team and played a lot of sports. But in addition to this, he started a little club with some of his friends where he was really into Middle English and Old English and Anglo-Saxon culture, stuff like that. He was absolutely fascinated by languages and linguistics. And he started to make up his own like little vocabulary sets and his own alphabets and codes and stuff. And, and he would kind of try them out on his friends and they would play around with languages and stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, around this time in Birmingham, they started to board with Mrs. Faulkner, and it was in that house where he met Edith Bratt. So Edith Bratt was a woman who was living on the first floor of the house, and this was when Tolkien was 16 and she was 19. She was also uh, an orphan, and she was studying piano, stuff like that. Apparently, you know, he fell in love at first sight. <laughs> he just saw this thing. I don't know if I believe in love at first sight, but 
there was a instant chemistry between them but he was 16 and she was 19. so father morgan stepped in and it was like hey man like you don't really know what you're doing at this stage in your life wait until you're 21. like give it five years and if you still want to marry this woman you know, like you don't even know really at this point if that's what she wants. So he agreed to do that because he he trusted Morgan's judgment. And, you know, even just socially speaking at that time, if you had a 16 year old boy marrying a 19 year old woman, like it would it would just obviously be very strange. Like people would talk, uh, especially because both of them were orphans, like people would talk. But anyway, Tolkien decided he was going to apply to Oxford. Um, he actually didn't get in on his first attempt, which is very interesting because the story of Tolkien's life is pretty much the story of a life at Oxford. Like, he's so tied to that institution. But anyway, on his second attempt, he gained a place at Exeter College, which is uh, one of the many colleges belonging to Oxford University. And that would kind of start the next chapter of his life. All right, so now we have Tolkien as a young man going off to Oxford. Right off the bat, he joined a rugby club, started playing rugby, that most English of sports. And he started a discussion club. And we have the next figure of inspiration in Tolkien's life, a man named Joseph Wright, who was a professor of comparative philology, which is the scientific, historical, and comparative study of languages. So this was right in Tolkien's wheelhouse, very much an inspiration to young John. In fact, Tolkien, um, he was studying Greek and Latin, like the greats, the classics, but he was a lot more interested in Northern European languages. And just the kind of person he was, he got into Finnish and started trying to teach himself Finnish. Why, you ask? Because it had a reputation among linguists as one of the most difficult European languages to learn. In fact, later in life, when you look at Middle-earth, um, a lot of the inspiration for the elven languages, like Elvish, uh, Quenya, and Sindarin, came from Finnish. They were very much inspired by the, the Finnish language, the sound, the spelling, stuff like that. Tolkien didn't limit his uh, linguistic influences to that. In fact, I've also read that the dwarven language, Husdul, uh, was based on Hebrew, kind of the way that the sounds interact and the way that the vowels and the consonants of the secret dwarven language um, kind of interact with each other was very much inspired by Hebrew. Around this time, uh, again, as a young man, he did do some time in the territorial army, which is kind of like the, the reserves of the British army, which was mostly uh, riding horses, uh, sleeping in tents, um, Tolkien didn't really take too much to the basic military training. Like, I, I just think he, he didn't find that interesting. He found it kind of boring. But he very much enjoyed the part of the training dealing with horses. He liked horses a lot. He liked taking care of them, interacting with them, riding them. And again, future inspiration for Middle Earth. I think this is uh, a lot of the, the kind of basis of the future Kingdom of Rohan in Lord of the Rings. Interestingly enough, he still had Edith Bratt on his mind and he decided, well, hey, I'm going to see, you know, I'm getting older now. I'm getting to that age where, uh, you know, it's socially acceptable to get married. So he decided to go check up on her and he contacted her and said, hey, like, remember, we, we kind of had a thing a couple years ago. What do you say about getting married now? And his heart was broken when the message came back and she said, I'm sorry, I'm actually engaged to someone else. So Tolkien, I guess he could have just accepted this, but uh, he really liked this girl. So he decides to go to a place called Cheltenham uh, to kind of make his case in person. It's like, uh, I don't know, some, some grand uh, gesture of love like you would see in Love Actually or Bridget Jones' Diary or something like that. So he goes to her house and she says, oh, no, I'm actually married to this guy named George, or um, engaged, sorry. I'm actually engaged to this guy called George Field, but I definitely remember you. And she remembered kind of a lot of the chemistry that they had. And 
you know, actually he was able to convince her. So she changed her mind and she told George Field's family, like, look, I'm really sorry, but there's this other guy, John Tolkien, that I that I really like and uh, I'd like to marry him instead. So, you know, if you if you look at kind of the, the overall um, story of Tolkien's life, Edith was just such a huge supportive influence on him, really kept him writing. Uh, they really loved each other, kind of inspired him that way. Uh, in fact, she um, would would sing and kind of dance and, and kind of stuff for him. And she was the inspiration for Luthien, the story of Baron and Luthien in the Silmarillion. Because uh, one time they were at a picnic and she was kind of dancing among the trees and singing. And, and he was just spellbound. And he started thinking of this a story of what would happen if a man, a mortal man, fell in love with an elven maiden. So that's kind of a little bit where the story of Baron and Luthien came from. In June 1915, Tolkien was awarded a first-class honors degree at Oxford University. So this is, you know, a big event in his life. On March 22nd, 1916, John and Edith were married at the Catholic Church of St. Mary Immaculate in Warwick. Uh, Edith was also Protestant originally, uh, but she converted to Roman Catholicism a bit earlier in 1914, and in fact had a similar experience to uh, Tolkien and his mother in terms of kind of the prejudice and the social challenges that they had to deal with. Uh, Her family was very angry uh, with this transition, uh, so very similar situation to Tolkien and his mother. They had a short honeymoon in Somerset, uh, which is in the west of the country, and then bought a house in Staffordshire. By this point, you may be wondering, um, oh, uh, I'm pretty sure Tolkien was in the First World War, uh, especially if you saw that recent movie called Tolkien that, uh, that came out. And yes, uh, the First World War started in 1914 with the Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand getting shot in Sarajevo in June of 1914. And then there was this whole crisis over July. And by August, uh, all these countries were were at war with each other. Well, Tolkien didn't go to war right away. Um, So he was studying at Oxford. And and like I just said, he, he got his degree in 1915. Um, He did go to war in 1916. So by this point, the British army had been fighting the Germans on the Western Front for two years. Uh, Tolkien, as an educated man, um, you know, from something of a gentlemanly background, was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Um, So the way it works, you know, in, in... modern armies and in the first world war is like you had the enlisted men and then you had the officers and uh they they were commissioned officers um things like lieutenants captains you know all the way up to general um they were the ones giving the orders we'll see why this is important you know a bit later but um he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the lancashire fusiliers uh so he went off to war his brother hillary was a private in the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. And his unit, uh, John's unit, John Tolkien, his unit was at the Somme. And the Somme is, in the history of the British Army, in the history of the First World War, in the history of, indeed, warfare of the world, the Somme is one of the most brutal battles that ever happened. I mean, I believe it was just on the first day the British lost like 58,000, 60,000 men. Um, Here, Tolkien had a chance to see firsthand just how far warfare had come. You know, as a student of history, I'm sure he was aware of medieval warfare, uh, Renaissance warfare, colonial warfare, Napoleonic warfare. But this was something entirely different. The battlefield of the Somme in many places was this muddy, desolate, bleak, colorless, blasted moonscape. Like, um, And as I've done several times in this episode, it's kind of referencing it back to Middle Earth. There are a good number of fans who have suggested 
that the way the battlefield appeared on the psalm was the inspiration for the land of Mordor. And that uh, men falling and drowning and dying in these huge uh, muddy craters was the uh, inspiration for the mirror of dead men. Like you see that swamp in the movies with uh, the dead faces under the water. So I have no doubt. I mean, another thing too is kind of the mechanization, the industrialization, this advanced technology that had worked its way into warfare, uh, which for Tolkien was something very orcish. It was something that he attributed in the world of Middle Earth to orcs. They're always uh, interested in innovation. They have this cunning mind for innovation and development, but only in the realm of things that are designed to hurt other things. So they're very cunning in designing, you know, these new weapons and stuff like that. And and I have no doubt that that was very much inspired by his experience in the First World War. Um, he was never wounded. Uh, he did see combat, uh, but he was he 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 was not a frontline officer, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I believe I read somewhere that he was a signals officer, uh, but don't quote me on that. I'm not too sure about that. However, at the end of 1915, um, he contracted what is called trench fever. Um, and this came up again, and they sent him home because he was too sick to fight. Um, so, yeah, it's it was not... It was not I mean, if you really look at the story of his life, um, I think that this impacted him very, very deeply. Uh, he did lose a bunch of friends in the war, and it kind of, I think, tempered some of his more romantic, idealist, uh, poetic kind of uh, feelings. On the other hand, it may have actually brought out a lot of his artistry by seeing kind of just how terrible things could, could be how terrible things could get, maybe it inspired him to really look for goodness and beauty in the world. And part of his religious faith that he carried with him throughout his entire life, um, and that and that indeed works itself into the mythology, the legendarium of Middle-earth, is this feeling that good is always there, even if you can't see it. You know, all it takes to light up a dark room is a single candle and... Um, and that good will always win out. It's there's just this universal goodness to everything. The last thing I'm going to say about Tolkien's experiences in the Great War is about the ordinary British soldiers. So I mentioned Tolkien was a commissioned officer. Below him, the people he would be giving orders to um, were the enlisted men, the, the non-commissioned members of the armed forces. Um, they were often called Tommies. Like Tommy was kind of the slang word for British soldiers in the Great War. And throughout the war, Tolkien was um, very impressed with how they put up with the conflict, this kind of this kind of pluck uh, and stiff upper lip, uh, this kind of good humor and the British tendency to downplay things. Um, all of these kind of characteristics of what it meant to be uh, English or, or, or British um, kind of combined with Tolkien's experiences in Warwickshire with those Warwickshire farm boys I talked about. It's almost like he took that as a prototype and then built on it with his experiences in the Great War and kind of the character, the, the strength of character of these Tommies in the trenches, and that further influenced his idea of what an ideal Englishman uh, was and is and should be, and by consequence, what an ideal hobbit was, is, and should be. I wanted to share a quote from uh, Lord of the Rings, and tell me if this does not describe a World War I battlefield on the Western Front, something like the Battle of the Somme. Quote, The only green was the scum of livid weed on the dark 
greasy surfaces of the sullen waters. Dead grasses and rotting reeds loomed up in the mists like ragged shadows of long-forgotten summers. Hurrying forward again, Sam tripped, catching his foot in some old root or tussock. He fell and came heavily on his hands, which sank deep into sticky ooze. For a moment, the water below him looked like a window, glazed with grimy glass, through which he was peering. Wrenching his hand out of the bog, he sprang back with a cry. There are dead things, dead faces in the water, he said with horror, end quote. So definitely, definitely, when you read stories about the First World War, the mud, the water, the craters, the way that the shells would churn up the earth and constantly bury, rebury, and re-expose uh, corpses and pieces of corpses, um, I definitely think Tolkien carried this with him. By 1924, the Tolkiens had three kids, uh, John, Michael, and Christopher. And after a time as a professor and then later chair of the English department at the University of Leeds, by 1924, Tolkien was headed back to Oxford. So this was a big deal. He was going back to where he felt that he really belonged. Um, while there, he... Um, definitely started building a social network um, with a lot of friends. But when I say the word networking, I don't mean that he was like doing it for any kind of professional gain or, or anything like that. I think Tolkien just generally was interested in, in certain things like, you know, languages and, and history and stuff. And he was just so excited to be around people that shared his interests. Um, he founded a group called the Inklings which was kind of like a, like a club for other professors, scholars, academics, intellectuals to discuss and kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, the name Inklings is kind of a play on the fact that um, they were working with ink, they were writers, but they were also sharing ideas with each other, i.e. Inklings, kind of the, the seeds, the kernels of the stories they were looking, uh, kind of looking at and studying, stuff like that. This group, uh, the Inklings, met from pretty much the mid-1930s right up until the end of the 1940s. Um, but a bit earlier, I mean, by 1929, the Tolkien's, uh, I should probably mention, had four kids. Uh, their fourth kid was a daughter named Priscilla. And at the English Department of Oxford in 1926, Tolkien first met C.S. Lewis, uh, which is, he's the author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, stuff like that. Uh, devoted Protestant uh, and Tolkien devoted Catholic were able to maintain this this really really close friendship, um, even though they they very much disagreed on on issues of religion. Like, I've read that uh, Lewis was kind of suspicious of Catholics and stuff like that, but it just goes to show you that they that they were such good friends that uh, they didn't let that kind of I don't I guess spoil it for them, like spoil their their friendship. This group, the Inklings, was a pretty big deal. Um, Tolkien and Lewis are probably the most famous uh, members, but it also included uh, Neville Coghill, Hugo Dyson, Lord David Cecil, uh, Colin Hardy, Charles Williams, like a lot of these kind of writers of the time period. Um, so Tolkien, it, it's interesting to think kind of what would have happened if he had not had this social network to bounce ideas off of. Um, and to kind of test out ideas and test out writing styles and stuff like that, uh, you know, would he have been able to create the same way that he did or even create at all uh, if he didn't have that, that social network? That's interesting. Um, some of the Inklings uh, met at a place on Tuesday mornings at an Oxford club 
sorry, a pub, sorry, called The Eagle and the Child. But of course, you know, being Englishmen, they didn't call it The Eagle and the Child. They called it The Bird and the Baby. Like, it sounds like something from Harry Potter, but whatever. Um, Definitely, this was... I mean, he had been part of an earlier club called uh, the Coal Biters at uh, Oxford, but definitely the the Inklings, you know, in terms of English uh, literature, 30s and 40s, this was a pretty important kind of little group. Um, a lot of these people were very successful at the time. I think the two that really have stood the test of time the best, you know, obviously would be Tolkien and Lewis, but uh, a lot of those other guys were were successful in their time. All right, so now let's talk about Tolkien's first um, major published work in Middle-earth, which was The Hobbit. Interestingly enough, he could not remember when he wrote it. He's pretty sure it was after 1930, but before 1935. So it's interesting. Guy, such a great memory, such a powerful mind. He can't really remember when he wrote this book. But in any case, that's not important. It was published in September of 1937 and was sold out by Christmas, which uh, that's a pretty good sign. Um, around this time in John's life, John Tolkien, uh, his son Christopher, which was uh, his third kid, had developed a dangerous heart condition, so he was often in bed a lot, so Tolkien would read to him. And again, this was kind of an opportunity, an outlet for him to test out these stories. Now, if you know your world history, uh, in 1937, much of the world was still in the Great Depression. Um, but, you know, the storm clouds were forming over Europe. Uh, world War II was coming. By 1937, the Nazis were in power in Germany. And uh, the reason why I'm talking about the Nazis is because there was this German publisher that contacted Tolkien and they wanted to publish a German-language version of The Hobbit. But because of the laws in Germany that had been passed by the Nazis, laws on media, so books, radio, television, anything like that, any kind of media, um, they, they would not publish anything uh, Jewish or like written or created by Jewish people or even if Jewish people had like assisted or funded or, or like been involved in any way. That was just like the laws of Nazi Germany was they were trying to like uh, eradicate, you know, all kind of Jewish media. So the reason why they were writing this letter to Tolkien is because they were asking him, do you have any, any Jewish blood, any Jewish uh, ancestry? And uh, Tolkien just wrote this, this, blistering letter back to them it's like it's such a 1930s british burn i definitely encourage you to google kind of and read the letter he sent back to the nazis but uh generally it was like well if you're referring to aryan which is actually the culture of northern india and then he started to school them on like languages and, and kind of ethnic identity uh and then he said i regret to say that uh, i do not have any of the blood of of that gifted race like the the jewish people and stuff like that uh and went on to say like look it's not my place to to tell you your laws and how to run your country but uh basically uh if that's what you care about then uh, i don't care about you publishing like my book like just forget about it like you're not going to publish it basically in the most polite 1930s british way possible he like schooled them and then told them to go to hell <laughs> like basically so uh definitely something that's just super interesting to read about uh if you ever get a chance like google like you know tolkien uh his response to this uh publisher from Germany that wanted to publish The Hobbit. I mean, one of the reasons people have often speculated Tolkien, what did he think about the Second World War and the Nazis? And a lot of people, you know, have speculated. I even heard this when I, when I was a kid that, oh, well, you know, it's actually a metaphor for World War II. Like, you know, Mordor is actually Nazi Germany and Sauron is Hitler and stuff like that. Uh, that's not true. Uh, they asked Tolkien about that several times in his life, and he said, no, like, my books are works of mythology. They're not intended to be any kind of political allegory or anything like that. 
uh, in the same vein as like George Orwell or something like that. Like that's not what he was trying to do at all. Their works of, of high fantasy, their works of mythology. He's like, if people want to read into that, then fine, they can. But that uh, wasn't his intention at all. One of the reasons why one of the reasons why Tolkien um, hated the Nazis so much is because um, Tolkien was very much in love with Germanic culture, uh, Germanic languages, Northern European legends, history, folklore, and stuff like that. And he felt that the Nazis had taken all of those things and warped them and twisted them into something vicious and hateful and um, just had completely co-opted, I guess, or hijacked kind of Germanic culture for their their hateful, racist, prejudiced uh, agenda. So kind of like they, they even asked him at the time and Tolkien was quoted as saying something like, um, he would have rather fought in the Second World War than in the First World War because in the Second World War, the reason for fighting to him personally was much more clear. Like, he, you know, there was a much more clear enemy adversary that had to be defeated. Um, so he, he didn't serve in the war, like in the regular armed forces. He served as an air raid warden uh, in Oxford. Uh, which is like whatever. Like he was, he was an older man now, and he was uh, a professor at Oxford. You know, they're not going to send him overseas in the infantry or something like that. Uh, but this was just kind of a job that he had, where it allowed him to help out during World War II and um, you know, kind of contribute to his community, but still do his job, like at the university. Uh, he obviously lived through the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, which was the Luftwaffe bombing of of Britain. Um, so, yeah, and in fact, there's a story of one time he looked out his window and he could see uh, the fires of Coventry burning because Oxford was mercifully spared, uh, for the most part, you know, any German bombing. But a lot of these other British uh, or English uh, university towns, uh, yeah, they were they were bombed and they caught fire and a lot of priceless kind of buildings and property and materials were destroyed. The Lord of the Rings is probably the most popular uh, of Tolkien's collected works, uh, certainly the best selling. It had taken John 12 years to write, and the first volume, The Fellowship of the Ring, was published in 1954. So right in the 50s. Uh, there's a, a YouTube video movie critic that I really, really like called Lindsay Ellis, and she made a very good point in one of her videos about Tolkien saying, until Tolkien, fantasy like elves, for example, in the Western world, um, you know, you had basically the Keebler elves like Santa Claus or you had Beowulf. <laughs> like it was like it was either it was either super childish stories about magical pixies and fairies or super, you know, obscure for the vast majority of the population, but like obscure Norse myths about dwarves and elves and stuff that um, the vast majority of people just didn't know about. Um, Tolkien kind of harnessed a lot of these influences into something that was just epic uh, and memorable and detailed. And, right, you know, from the beginning, people were blown away by like, oh, wow, like, like, how detailed is this world? Like, it actually feels real. And I think that the amount of detail that's in the books is um, really one of the reasons why the movies were so successful, because the movies, it's like, well, all of the creative work is pretty much done for you. Like, you don't have to really invent or create a lot of things. Um, obviously, though, like, the, the counterpoint to that is the danger for the filmmaker is well, if we don't do X, Y, and Z, then all these fans are going to be upset. But in any case, uh, the Lord of the Rings just pretty much is the, the foundational work of modern fantasy. Like so many subsequent fantasy series drew inspiration. Um, I, like I can't even go through all of them. It's just, it's, it's too much. Um, the Silmarillion was actually published uh, after Tolkien's death, but that's like a completely different story. Um, 
it's the story of the first and second ages of middle earth whereas lord the lord of the rings and the hobbit take place in the third age um, and that's kind of like another thing about tolkien's writings uh, heavily influenced by mythology is you have these grand epic um, cycles throughout history where certain themes motifs concepts um, almost as if through grand design or you know divine providence are repeated so you know one example we can give is the story of Baron and Luthien in the first age a lot of you know fans have speculated that this cycle was repeated in the third age with Aragorn and Arwen so and that, I mean that's just something interesting to think about In 1967, there was a British author named Humphrey Carpenter, and he actually visited Tolkien, um, you know, to gather some information for a book he wanted to write. And here's a quote I wanted to share with you, uh, where Humphrey describes kind of how Tolkien would speak. Quote, He has a strange voice, deep, but without resonance, entirely English, but with some quality in it that I cannot define, as if he had come from another age of civilization. Yet for much of the time, he does not speak clearly. Words come out in eager rushes. Whole phrases are glided or compressed in the haste of emphasis. Often his hand comes up and grasps his mouth, which makes it even harder to hear him." End quote. So um, I just wanted to share this to kind of bring Tolkien a little bit to life uh, for, for the purposes of this episode. It's, uh, you know, definitely you get the, the, the impression of, you know, this English professor from this quote that I just read. So that was in 1967. In 1972, Tolkien celebrated his 80th birthday and the Silmarillion and a huge, he had a huge uh repository this huge backlog of things he had been writing um but had never gotten around to finish and actually that's how the silmarillion was collected by his son and published uh, after his his death um so he made it like in 1966 they had their golden wedding anniversary uh and they had this huge party at, at uh, merton college in, in oxford but like i said in 1972 uh he turned 80 years old and I, his health kind of started to decline rapidly. You see, like, some people when they get old, um, there's this long, long, long decline where they just generally kind of weaken and, and then die. Uh, and then some people, they're, like, fit right up until the end and then just, like, something happens. I kind of get the impression uh, that's what happened with Tolkien. This year, 1972, where he turned 80, he was also awarded the Commander of the Order of the British Empire from the Queen at Buckingham Palace. And in the same year, he got an honorary doctorate of letters from the University of Oxford. So a little bit later, um, he started complaining of indigestion, which is like just in his in his bowels and in his stomach and stuff like that and finally the family convinced him to go to a doctor and they found a bleeding gastric ulcer um, the it had developed eventually into an infection and on sunday morning in uh, this was september 2nd 1973 he actually died in bed and he was 81 years old. Uh, so he made it to 81. Uh, Tolkien was buried in the Catholic cemetery at Wolvercote, uh, just outside of Oxford, alongside Edith, who had died a little bit earlier. Interestingly enough, when Edith was buried, the headstone for, for her grave, um, he inscribed the word Luthien on the tombstone. And when he was buried, he, it's, you know, he ordered his headstone would say the word Baron. And like fans of Middle Earth, I already mentioned this, know the story of Baron and Luthien. 
But what's interesting to note is that when, when she was buried and when he was buried, the Silmarillion actually was not published yet. So a lot of people who saw this stone, they're like, well, Luthien and Bar like, what does that even mean? And it only became clear years later uh, to the vast majority of the population what these words actually meant when the Silmarillion was published. So I don't know why I find that interesting, but it, it's just... It's kind of like... You know, if Tolkien could have lived a hundred years or eleven-one like Bilbo, or like a hundred and fifty years, he would have just kept writing uh, forever. So I just find that very interesting. All right, well, I think that's where I'm gonna wrap up the story of Tolkien's life. Um, I've already kind of woven in elements of his legacy into this episode. I am very aware that I kind of sped through well not sped through but maybe glossed over some of the details of the second half of his life and the reason for that is because i i suddenly became acutely aware that this episode was running uh, a lot longer than i expected uh, but i just couldn't help it i mean this guy's you know one of my favorite writers and is just like a you know beloved by millions so uh, i really hope that you don't mind that um <laughs> And for those of you who are expecting a shorter episode, because this is indeed bite-sized history, maybe you'll forgive me uh, if this is this episode ran just a little long. Okay, well, that's going to do it uh, for us here today. Uh, my goal in this episode was to give you details of Tolkien's life, especially his early life. Um, and I wanted to use examples of things that happened to him to illustrate how those influences made their way into Middle-earth, rather than just give you a date-by-date, beat-by-beat kind of timeline of his life. Like, you know, this is this, this is this. No, it's kind of, um, these are stories, uh, events, occurrences throughout the life of this writer that I found interesting and where I could see them kind of popping up later in uh, in his writings, uh, his writings about Middle-earth. So I hope you enjoyed it. This has been Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Goodbye.